Good morning, everybody. I'm a really am curious why we have to go boundary to boundary, border to border, boundary to boundary. Can't see you over there, so you have to wave every now and again. You know, I, uh, as I said in the first hour, I, I consider this to be an extraordinary privilege to be able to to do this it is a difficult thing to do if you've um, and, and the reason being is the enemy just really has a heyday with you because you in, 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 in many different ways and uh, <clears throat> so when when people get up to do this it's Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a phenomenal pastor back in the 1800s, used to say to his people repeatedly, if you stop praying for me, I quit preaching. But Spurgeon had started preaching when he was 16 years old. First church when he was 16. Um, and it was because God had, had used him extraordinarily. It seemed he took a church that was in trouble, had 200 people in it, and shortly thereafter it was 2,000 people. And then from there, he started eventually speaking to 25,000 people on a Sunday. And this is back in the day when they didn't have these things. How do you speak to 25,000 people without a public address and uh, he was often given to depression and, and the depression was in part generated from the feeling of inadequacy while he, he believed that God had called him to do what he was doing he felt as though he was not well equipped that to the burden, and really, it, it, for you that have, that are familiar with this kind of experience, one of the burdens of this is, I am supposed to be saying to you what God wants you to hear today. You realize what that means? That I am supposed to be saying to you what God wants you to hear. Um, there was a, a preacher a while back I was reading. He said, the preacher has two responsibilities. One is to break down the word accurately and truthfully. That was one first assignment. The second part of the assignment is to know your people so that the word is applied to the people that are in front of you. Well, I, I can do some of the first part and very little of the second part because I don't know other than I, some of you I know by name, but so God's going to have to work around that part of it. Um, and then I was listening to another preacher who said he used to vomit every, every time before he went up to pee, speak, he would vomit. 
the, the anxiety of the moment. So to prevent that from happening, I'm going to tell you a joke. Now, don't take offense. It's, it's meaningless humor. I mean, it's not meant to hurt anybody's feelings. But there's this Catholic priest who was listening to confession. And he was under observation by the bishop while he was doing this. And so that the bishop pulled him aside and said, Father, you have to quit doing, responding the way you're responding. When they confess their sins, you've got to quit saying, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought that was funny. I, I laughed and laughed. And, anyway. We are in chapter 23 through chapter 26 in the book of Acts. I'm not, I don't have anything on the board. I didn't give my uh, teammates any uh, insights, so they have no idea where I'm going or what I'm doing, and to my surprise, I don't either. But we are in chapters 23 to 26, and Paul is now in a very challenging environment. Paul is faced with a confrontation with the Roman authorities. These are people who have power to make life really hard, even to the point of ending life. And so Paul is faced with the, the importance of what to say and how to say it, and the temptations that come with facing people who have that kind of influence over you or at least have that kind of influence governmentally. So um, Paul has three different people that he must face. And when I was, when I was uh, working on the preparation of this message, I thought, you know, you can go, you can go a lot of ways with this. I, I had first started out saying that I titled the sermon, What is True North? What is True North? And then as I, because I knew for six weeks I would be doing this. And by the way, Zach called me this morning and said he was sick. Six weeks ago, he gave me this assignment, he's sick today. What's that saying to you? Now, are you really sick or you just took it, this was a vacation day and this is how you subtly got it your way? Wouldn't be that, would it? No. Now I'm causing suspicion on the part of some here. Anyway, he is, and cat are both sick. But as I, as I continue to work on it, I, I kind of veered off of that a bit because, well, it's going to be one of the core parts of what we're going to talk about. The other part of it is the, I'm, I'm big on lineages. I, I'm fascinated by the, the, the human factor. And so you have three characters in, the, in this that are predominant, one being Felix. Felix is the first one in chapter 24. Felix is the governor of the area. Felix was kind of misplaced. 
Felix was a slave at one point who was eventually brought into a place of power and authority by virtue of who he knew and who took favor with him. Um, Felix was not liked by the Roman hierarchy because he was not looked on as being worthy of being there. Felix was also kind of a mischievous, nasty fellow. He took a woman to be his wife that was already wed by another, and um, she was very young when he got her. Even though she'd been wed to another, he pulled her away, and her name was Drusilla. I used to kiddingly say to my kids, you know, that in honor of their dad, they ought to name the child after their dad. Although I never liked my name, I don't like Bruce as a name, I always gave grief to my kids saying you ought to take that name somehow. And the question was, well, what do you do if it's a girl? Well, how about Brucella? And uh, that went over about like you would imagine it went over. Well, this girl's name is Drusilla, Felix's wife. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, Drusilla was also Agrippa's wife's sister. <coughs> so who's Agrippa? A King Agrippa? His wife's name is Bernice. So Drusilla was the sister of Bernice. And, you, and do you know something else? Bernice, being King Agrippa's wife, was also his sister. So in other words, there was incest. King Agrippa married his wife or his sister. So Bernice was his sister. She was also married when King Agrippa went after her. See the, see the human drama in there? It's just a lot of muck. If you want to really play the picture out, Bernice continued to live with King Agrippa till he died, and she ultimately ended up with Titus. You know who Titus is? What was the significance of Titus, the wicked king, Titus? He was the one that destroyed Rome in AD 70. So Brusilla, or Bernice, excuse me, was always in that, that whatever you want to call it. Now you, so the, so the, the reason I'm bringing that up, you, you can say, well, this is boring. Well, but it is and it isn't, because it's intrigue. It's the palace intrigue. You have Felix, you have Festus, and then you have King Agrippa. And they're all cohorts in, the, in, the, in this Roman governing process. So Felix didn't last long. He was a very crooked guy, very um, apt to be influenced by money. When he had Paul in, his, uh, uh, in prison, he imprisoned Paul. And, and he had a sit down with Paul and he discovered that they didn't have a strong case against him. And the problem that that caused for Felix is that Paul was also a Roman citizen. 
And because he's a Roman citizen, he had access to upline over Felix. So Felix couldn't just do away with him. Roman citizens were treated differently. They had kind of like what used to be with the American citizenry. If you were an American, the, you, you, you were protected and, and that entitled you. I know if you ever flew internationally and you come back to the United States and you were an American citizen, when you went through customs, you went through a different vein. You didn't go through the same channels that all the others went because you were an American citizen. So you could move more rapidly through. There was, there was, a, there was a certain pride factor. Well, that's the way it was in being a Roman citizen. There was aspects to it that were really good. So Felix has this problem because what is he gonna do with Paul? Because the, the suit brought against him didn't hold muster. And so Felix, in the, in the great political scheme of the day, kicked the can down the road. He just left Paul in jail and was to deal with it someday. And he was really, and if you look at verse 10 of chapter 24, Felix was really hoping that Paul would bribe him and that he could get some money out of Paul. Paul didn't bribe him. So there he sat in jail. He sat in jail for over two years. Now, how would you think Paul would react as a, a man on a mission? His mission in life was to spread the gospel to the Gentile world. That's what God had assigned him to do. That's what he talks to the Roman leadership about when he gives the defense of why he's there and what he's doing. He said, I was given the responsibility by God on the road to Damascus to share Christ with the Gentile world. Now, how do you do that sitting in prison for two years, locked up? And Paul was a high intellect. So how do you keep that high intellect engaged in prison for two years? Typically what happens, I, I ran into a, a, a waitress the other day. Um, you're hearing things this hour that they didn't hear last hour. They didn't hear that joke, so you can share it with them. I know you want to tell somebody. Um, I, I met a, a waitress who, interestingly enough, we had a discussion about being in the hole. Because she was in the hole. You know what it means to be in the hole? She was in solitary confinement because of her behavior. And I said, how do you, I, I, I can't imagine that. I cannot imagine being locked up and not in communication and just in a sterile room, unable to go anywhere, un, uh, you, you're terribly restricted. And she said, it's, easily, it's easy to get depressed. It's easy to get down because man, is this it? Is this life? Now you take a look at Paul and Paul had been given this assignment by God to go and spread the gospel to the world 
and I'll be diagoned, here he is locked up, and so what do you suppose? Put yourself in his place, what do you suppose Paul might be wrestling with? Did I hear it right? Did God really give me this assignment? Did I hear it right? If so, God, why am I here? Why am I locked up? Why am I not out and about? Well, but, but when you read, you don't see that that ever happened to Paul. He seemed, when he got a chance to get in front of the, the notoriety, didn't change him. He got up and, and told the story. So Felix left, <coughs> excuse me, Felix left the scene pretty quick because he, he was not a good king, or a governor. So he was dismissed rather quickly. He had a sh- very short term in office. He, he had a lot of chaos. The Romans love peace. So if you're ruling and you don't sustain or maintain peace in your domain, you're looked upon with real concern. And um, the Jews were not easy to keep corralled. They are a very difficult people to, to rule over as witnessed by Moses and by others who say, man, these guys are. Remember Moses one time said, what on earth? You put two Jews in a room, you have three opinions. Did you know that? Good old joke. Old line. So then what happens? Festus comes on the scene. You remember Festus, Marshall Dillon? Not the same Festus, but nonetheless, here comes Festus. Festus was a good man generally, much more honorable than Felix. But Paul had a problem with Festus because as he approached Festus about resolving, or better said, as Festus stepped in to try to resolve this case of Paul and get him off the, the slate, Paul ran into the, or Festus had an issue. The Romans, or excuse me, the Jewish people were, that were in this mix hated Paul. Why? What did Paul do that they hated him? Well, he spoke the gospel. He told it like it was. And hence, the guilt of the crucifixion was on them. And not only the guilt of the actual act of the crucifixion was on them, but also it cast a a shadow on their lifestyle. And, you know, it's one thing if... um, I'm dragging myself away here. It's one thing to... Um, have somebody important that, that is named. But when you have Jesus Christ, you have a decision to make. The name Jesus Christ forces you to a decision. What do you think about him? Because if he is what he says he was, and he did what he said he did and why he did it, then you have a decision to make in your life. And they didn't like that. 
Felix had a real problem because Felix, remember, stole a, a woman, and so did the others. And now guilt is there, and if you have Christ, you have the issue of guilt and sin, and what do you do with it? And so Paul, being the one who was talking about Christ, was causing such grief to the Jewish people. And so Festus said, because he was new in the role of governor, replacing Felix, he said, let's go, how about you and I go, Paul, we'll go to Jerusalem and we'll deal with it there. Um, Because that's what the Jews wanted. They wanted to have Paul come to Jerusalem. They were currently in Caesarea, which was to the north. And why did the Jews want to have Paul brought to Jerusalem? If you read the story, because they intended to kill him on the way. They intended to jump on him and kill him. And Paul got wind of this, and Paul said, no, I want to be judged. I'm in the place where I should be judged, and I want to be judged by none other than the Caesar. So Paul used his Roman citizenship by declaring, I want to be judged by Caesar, and as a Roman citizen, you had that right, which now put Festus in a real box because Festus was trying to appease the Jewish people because they're always such a hard people to govern. And now Festus has got a problem. So now what? Well, here comes King Agrippa. King Agrippa is coming with Bernice, his sister wife, to see and welcome Festus to his, king, to, to his work. And so then Festus tells King Agrippa about Paul. And now let's do a little lineage work here. For you that love lineages. Agrippa's name was not just Agrippa. It was Herod Agrippa II. Meaning there was another one before him. And there was another one before him. The lineage of Herod Agrippa II, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Do you remember Herod the Great? Herod the Great was on the throne when the star of Bethlehem appeared. And you remember what Herod said, Herod the Great? He said, go find this kid, my words, go find this child, I want to do my right thing to him. And so remember the wise men took off and they left and they found Jesus and they, but they were told to go a different way. And so what did King Herod the Great do? He ordered all boys under the two and under to be slaughtered. This is Herod Agrippa II's great-grandfather. So now you're getting a sense of the lineage issue. Now you move to Herod's grandfather. Excuse me. Herod's grandfather, sorry, was Herod 
Agrippa, Herod, I lost track. The next Herod in the mix was the one who stood in front of Christ while he was being tried. Remember Herod stood in judgment of Christ before the crucifixion? That's, the, that's in line there. I, I think that was Herod's, Agrippa's father. Herod Agrippa the second, or the first, sorry. But the point being, you see that in the judgment of Christ. Here's Herod's again, that lineage. And then you go to Acts chapter 12, and you see another Herod. And that Herod is the same Herod who arrested James, the brother of John. And who's James, the brother of John? One of the disciples. He was the one, remember, that with his brother said, I want to sit on the left and, and the other on the right. The same James. And what did the Herod do there? He beheaded James. And then he arrested Peter. Remember when Peter was in prison and then he got out of prison? These are, this is the lineage you're dealing with. So now you've got Paul standing there. Paul knows this. Paul is a brilliant man. He knows the history. He stand there in front of Herod Agrippa II, knowing their lineage, knowing what they did to people of this thought life, this way of living. And Agrippa says, well, what do you got to say for yourself, Paul? That's why Agrippa wanted to see him, because he'd heard about Jesus. And, and of course, here's, here's Paul, who's very well known in the world because of his influence in starting churches and, and, and defending his faith. So Agrippa says, what do you got to say for yourself? And you know what Paul had the audacity to do? He had the audacity to give him his testimony. That's exactly what Paul did. He gave him his testimony. Now there's three points that I want to make sure we get across today. That if you take nothing else home from here, that you take these things home and chew on it. Number one, know what you believe and own it. Know what you believe and own it. It's gonna be very important to you. If not today, it will be up ahead. Because the world is in a situation, in a condition where it is, you are being faced with, we are all being faced with taking a position. It's good, there's going to be a clear and present condition of which side are you on. You cannot be indifferent as a believer about which side you're on. But what is gonna be forced on you or, or what you're gonna be faced with is the temptation to try to straddle that line, to try to not take a position or to take a weak enough position that you have wiggle room. But that's not gonna happen. Know what you believe and own it. So, Paul, 
was a perfect example. He knew what he believed. He was on the road to Damascus. He was persecuting the church. This is his testimony in Acts chapter 26. And on that journey, he was he encountered a light brighter than the sun, and it knocked him to the ground. Didn't say there that he fell off his horse. Some people believe he was riding a horse. Doesn't say he had a horse. He was knocked to the ground. And it was there that he, Jesus said to him, Paul, Paul, why are you, why persecute, why thou persecute me? Or those kind of words. And <clears throat> Paul then took that. That's part of his testimony of how Christ got a hold of him and changed him and changed his mission in life, changed his whole view of life. So if you're in here, and because I don't know you, here you go. And if you're a believer in Christ, do you know your testimony? If I were to walk up to you and say, hey, tell me your testimony, tell me your life story, it's more than the same, can you tell me? Realizing that the rule of thumb in the world today is you've got five minutes. It's an elevator testimony. What's that mean? It means if you get on an elevator with somebody and they say, tell me about yourself, you've got five minutes before the door opens and they're gone. So you better have it packed down into where you can get specifically to the points in five minutes. And you have to be able to speak that with conviction. There's not this meandering and wandering around. Know what you believe and own it. Paul did. And he owned it in front of Agrippa. He owned it in front of Festus. He owned it in front of Felix. He did not change his story. His story was his story. The temptation as, for instance, if you're a school teacher or or you're in a, in a role where you're going and you're getting called up to the administrative building and you're going to be sitting around a bunch of suits, if you will, or however that works, and you're faced with these people that are all educated people with titles and money and all this, and, and, and the first thing that the enemy tries to say to you is you, you, you don't belong here. You really better be careful because you're out of your league here. So be careful what you say, because your job's at stake, maybe. Or certainly a promotion would be at stake. And so then what do you do? You waffle. Or you try to find a, 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 an appeasement ground. You can't do that. You won't be allowed. Any, the, the, the way life is going, you won't be allowed. Secondly, number two. This comes straight from the movie Josie Wales. You'd say, well, what's that got to do with the Bible? It's, it's a biblical truth coming from Josie Wales. Josie was going to meet the Indian chief named Ten Bears. And in going to meet Ten Bears, Ten Bears was the leader of the Comanche tribes. And Ten Bears was not, a, I mean, he was a, a tough character. And Josie was going to meet him because life was at stake for those that Josie was associated with. So he just took it head on, went to meet him, 
and they met. Here comes all the Indians, the Braves coming and surrounding Josie, and, and here's 10 bears. And why are you here? And he said, I've come to give you life or take it. And Josie then went on to explain why he was there. And in the explanation, here's the words I want you to hear. Ten Bear's response to Josie's statements was, there is iron in your words for all Comanches to hear. Forget the all Comanches to hear. There is iron in your words. What does that mean? Are there iron in your words? Do you speak truth? And do you live by that which you speak? Is there iron in your words? Now, number one, know what you believe, own it. Number two, what you say. Are there iron in those words? Is it strong? Will it stand up? I, I never forgot that line because at, so many people, they, they kind of give you promises or, you know, they say things, but they're, they're just babbling. They're not, they're, they're, there isn't any iron in it, so to speak. Third point. Um... I'm in the mowing business. Big deal, huh? I have a rule for my mowing guys. Rule is, you have to have a straight line. The lines have to be straight. Why? Because crooked lines means you don't care. If you care enough to set straight lines, it means you care. I, I grew up on a farm in South Dakota, and my dad would, had a great habit on Sunday afternoons of going for a ride. And then when I, dad and I, well, often the family, when we go for a ride, we didn't go very fast. Why? Because dad was always looking at the neighbor's fields. He, mile after mile, he was looking at the fields. And what was he looking at? He said, these lines are straight. Fields clean, meaning the weeds aren't apparent. What's that tell you about that farmer? He cares. He cares about how he does it. And then you go to a, a field and, you, and the lines are crooked and maybe there's weeds showing up. He doesn't care. He'll never make it. He doesn't care. Are your lines straight? Can you be counted on? That's why my lines in mowing must be straight. You set the lines. Now, how do you do that? Let's say you're in a great big field. Well, even in this gymnasium, let's say there's nothing, there's no lines, it's just a big room. And I'm saying to you, I need you to 
to set a line from that rim to that rim, and that rims aren't there. I mean, you from there to there. How do you set the line on a mower? You pick out the target, whether it's a mile off or a half mile off or a hundred yards. You pick out the target. It could be a tree stump. It could be a fence post. It could even be a weed, but it's a target. And you're here and there's that target. And you get on that mower and you don't take your eyes off that target until you get to it. You draw an imaginary line in front of you and you follow that imaginary line right to that target. What the problem you have is if you get distracted and you do this, where's my target? Now you've done something you shouldn't have done. Paul knew what his target was. His target was Christ. That was all that mattered to him. Christ. And performing his work for Christ like Christ had wanted it done. You see that in chapters 23 through 26. I mean, there was no wavering. There was no mushiness in anyone. I mean, just clear and straight. It's so important to do that. Don't you admire people that keep it clear and straight and they have this uncompromising way. Now, where you don't admire them is if they're on the opposite side of the issue as you. Because, come on, come on, give a little air, and they say, nope, not given. But Paul is setting an example for us here about true north. There's where true north came from when I was thinking of preparing this. What's your true north? For instance, I got to thinking as I was, as I was preparing this message over the last... I, I had many weeks, and there were adjustments made all the way along. And um, I get to thinking about some of the people in the Bible who are like Paul was. We'll come to Christ in a moment, but how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Daniel? Know those guys? Remember them? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel? There's this darn furnace sitting right there, and that furnace is hot. And it is really hot. And all that, it's not a problem for you to be hot, as long as you do what the king wants you to do. And what the king want you to do? He want you to bow down to the image made of me. Just bow down, and you have no concern about the furnace. If you don't bow down, you'll be in that furnace. And you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel was not present in this experience. So you have those three boys and all the population. When the instruments sounded, everybody bowed down except for three people. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I would think you could justify by saying, you know, who would be the wiser? Why don't we, Shad, you know, Abednego gets Shad and Meshach together, hey boys, let's bow down, because we'll be standing up on the inside. But who will know? Who will know? And save us from going in there. You ever had that temptation? You, you're asked to do something, and you, everybody else is doing it, and, it, and you're saying, I, I'll do it, nobody will know. Who knows? There's two people that know, for sure. That's Christ and you. Yourself. And you do that. What happens next time? You've already compromised once. Now what? There was a, um, who was it that said this a while back? It's easier to hold the line at 100% than it is to hold the line at 90. It's easier to hold the line at 100% than it is to hold the line at 90%. If you hold the line and you stay true to the line and true to yourself and true to your target, who can argue? There it is. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, we're not going to do it. I don't care what you're doing. So he said, well, we're going to stoke that furnace seven times hotter. Okay. Still not going to bow. And they didn't. And they went in the furnace. I, I, I have lived that drama in my head a thousand times over the years, wondering if I had the iron to stand against that heat and that holy cow. Um, Jesus. Jesus was in the garden the night before, or soon before his crucifixion. And remember what he said to the Father? He was praying. And he was looking at what he was facing. And he said something to the Father that people would sometimes suggest he was trying to waffle out of what he was going to do. What did he say? He said, Father, if there's any way, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. In other words, he's standing by that furnace. He's feeling that heat. And, and, and it's much greater than the physical heat. What he's facing that is way beyond our ability to get hold of is he's facing separation from God. He's facing the moments when sin is placed on him and he is completely separated from God. And that's never happened before or after. But it's in those moments when that, the, the dread 
and the anxiety and the temptation that Satan is, Satan is sitting there just with all it's any pulling on him to try to not go to that. You know, I really do have the, I, I, I don't have, don't take this to the, to the higher authorities because I may be wrong. I don't think Satan wanted him to die on the cross. I think that's why he was beaten so badly and why so much torment and so much just why was he being beaten so badly? What did he do that humanity wanted to beat him beyond recognition? What was going on? I really am inclined to believe that Satan was trying to prevent him from going to the cross, trying to get him to say, it's too much. I can't do it. It's too much. The agony of the cross, why? Because Satan has to have known that if he died on the cross and resurrected, it's over for him. It's now, he's done. So the point being, Christ is the author and finisher of your faith. Like Paul, like Jesus, like the boys in Daniel, Stay true. I'm gonna, what time we gonna quit? 2.30? There about, no. Some of you guys are getting tired already. I'm watching your eyes droop, but I'm thinking I should get up and sing, but that's, you know, just anything to keep the attention. Look at Matthew chapter 10. I want to show you something I thought was fascinating. To, it was to me. Matthew chapter 10, verses 18. I know it's in here. I got it in here. Eighteen and nineteen. Matthew 10. Here's Paul's setting with King Agrippa and Festus and Felix. This is Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. Paul isn't even a thought yet. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. This is Paul's picture in Matthew chapter 10. And again, Paul, Paul was not even in the game at this point. And the final point, final, final thing to say to you. Because um, I had said throughout the morning that beware. Beware the importance of taking a stand and knowing where you are because you're going to get challenged. If you don't think so, just wait. You'll see and you'll wish you would know what you believe and own it. Keep iron in your words and keep your eye on the finisher. Keep your eye on the cross and Christ. Why? 
because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells you what's coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells you what's coming. In there, it talks about strong delusion. It talks about the time as we near the end where you're given over to strong delusion so as to believe the lie. The Bible even goes on to say, if it weren't, the days are shortened, if it were not so, even the elect would fail. We're facing a time, this is not a doomsday, this is reality. We are facing a time when you've got to know what you believe and have to be prepared to stand. You're going to be faced with it. You'll be faced with a decision. You're on this side or you're this side. Which are you? And you, that's not the time to try to decide what you believe. Now's the day to know. Where are you? What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about the instructions in the scripture? What do you believe about the whole thing called church? Because you, you, you're going to face it. And there you go. We're going to stop now. Thank you for coming and for putting up with um, a rookie sitting up here. Um, can you imagine a 73-year-old rookie? Anything you want to say? I always open it up to speaking. Let's pray and we'll go and have a great day. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege again of this treat of being able to talk to these people about very important matters and, and the example that you placed in front of us in the life of Paul. Help us, Father, to be strong in the same person, whether encountering people who have authority over us or people that are have no influence in us at all, that we would be true to our word and faithful. God, we just thank you for this day and for the privilege of life the past week and the things that you kept from us. Um, walk with us as we leave the door. Help us to think on things that matter. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, guys.